So what has you seeking asylum? Religious persecution? Leading a rebellion? Some sort of sex stuff? I want to see how the shields work. You want to see our top secret defensive schematics? Yeah, and your crimson force field, too. Uh, I will see if it's operational. You getting Baz Minty when he pulled back the veil vibes from this guy? Oh, yeah. Captain Freeman, our Packlet refugee appears to be more of a Packlet spy. What? He hasn't gotten anything, has he? No, I think we'll be okay. Oh, oh, oh. He just took a photo of his own foot. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, prank calling Armis. <laughs> and we're here this week to tackle the latest episode of Lower Decks, The Spy Humongous. Yeah, you know, this episode is written by one John Cochran. He is a winner, million-dollar winner of Survivor Cam. And, of course, you and I had the great pleasure of meeting him in Las Vegas at a convention. I think it was back in 2019. That was, like, a total highlight for us. He was a really fun Survivor winner. He was kind of the narrator of the season. He had a lot of laughs, you know, uh, kind of chambered every single time he did one of those uh, reality TV confessionals during the show. So I just would like to highlight uh, his um, kind of a dedication to the series and uh, his contribution here before we jump into uh, this week's episode. Yeah, and we should actually mention last week's episode was co-written by David Wright, who was also a player on Survivor who made it very far, especially his first time around. And we met him as well in Las Vegas and it was very uh, fun to meet as well. Do you remember at the Las Vegas panel, like when they brought up uh, about like half the writing staff from Lower Decks and the moderator of the panel uh, said, yeah, we have one survivor winner and one survivor loser here on the writing staff. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, OK, <laughs> like David Wright did very well in the game. And he even said at the end, like he kind of he, he's happy that he did not win. Yeah, um, I think winning a reality show can sometimes lead to a questionable future life although not the case for john cochran it would seem or the case of uh tyler orton who won kid nation uh about <laughs> 12 years ago which one was kid nation it was a cbs series is virtually like kind of survivor but on a kind of an abandoned western town oh and yeah it was like 40 kids like ranging from ages 8 to 15 it was like <laughs> A hilarious, it was a wild show. It was absolutely hilarious, but like, there's so many like faux pas made throughout like kind of the producer's decisions. There's kids getting burnt by grease on the stove <laughs> as the kids like tried to like fend for themselves with no adult supervision. It was, Cam, that, 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 you need to find that show somehow. It, it is absolutely crazy. I don't know what would be crazier, the show itself or the interviews with these children and their stage parents. <laughs> Oh, there is one. Okay, like everybody knows this who's ever watched it, but the uh, stage parents um, were totally Taylor's parents. Like Taylor was kind of the the villain of the series. I think she was nine. Oh but, no! Like, yeah, but she was like, I'm sorry, but she's like an adult now. I don't care. I'll, I'll say it, but like she totally was a mean girl. 
she like it was amazing to watch her but she was absolutely hilarious but she was 100% a mean girl and you totally knew that she had kind of the stage parents like awaiting you know every update that they might get you know from that like four week stay that those kids had in the old western town so she was sort of the reality show answer to the imaginary friend from the TNG episode of the same name <laughs> what was her name it was something like Stephanie or like something oh, like I very can't obvious remember. I just it watched a very... the episode yeah. yeah I just watched it like two three days ago and uh what a weird episode <laughs> But um, I can't can't remember the name. Okay, okay. But the the imaginary the imaginary friend alien. Yeah. Yes, Cam. That is very similar to Taylor from Kid Nation. So we we've brought it all back around to Star Trek. I'm glad to say. How is it? You know, this podcast has been running since 2014. How has the imaginary friend not played a larger role in the journey of this show? Cam, should we do? Okay, you know how we've recently been doing like reviews of like classic episodes. Yeah. Should we do one dedicated to Imaginary Friend? Because I think that episode is wild. There's like Alexander, there's like Clay being thrown against his Klingon head. It's like, I'm open I don't know, to it. That would be, I'm open to it as well. So maybe we do a double pack. We'll do like Imaginary Friend paired up with others, with like some other crazy episode. How about the one where Janeway's exploring the Victorian Gothic novel holodeck program? <laughs> This is an amazing pitch, and I'm sure our listeners are already tuning out. <laughs> I, I don't blame them at this point. But Cam, back to the episode at hand. Um, okay, I had totally different reactions. First time uh, I watched this episode, I, I did not have my notes out. And then I watched it again uh, a second time with my notes out. And it was weird. Like, the first time I watched this one, I was just like, oh, it's kind of one of those manic star trek lower decks episodes there's like four different storylines going on at once what am i tracking i get it there's moments that i enjoy there's other stuff that kind of seems a little bit uh tied up a little bit too easily but i just kind of let loose while i was doing my notes i had my uh my screen on my tv and then i also was looking at my keyboard and my macbook and kind of taking notes it was kind of going back and forth between it i kind of let loose a little bit and i enjoyed it more my second time but I, I have this question for you, Cam. Do, do you think this is just kind of the typical Lower Decks groove and that maybe the last half of season one where we saw it going places that we found very exceptional, was that more of a fluke more than anything else? It may have been. Because when I look at those episodes we really enjoyed, they were often single story focused or the B story was much slighter than the A story. Whereas here, we have four stories going at the same time. And we've seen, you know, three stories going the same time, four stories going the same time throughout this season. And I was of two minds, and I actually made a note myself about this episode, in that having four stories with very little time with each one of them, I think in this case, they're balanced fairly well. Like, I don't have an issue with, you know, the show feeling super rushed, or, you know, I'm unsatisfied with what each story gave me. But it also left me thinking, could more have been done with one of these stories to flesh it out into something a little deeper? And not, you know, philosophically deeper, but just maybe take it past the surface level of comedy and dig for something a little harder to find. That's sort of where I was wondering with this one. This kind of felt like they came up with four fun ideas and said, let's just put the four of them in a single episode together. I could have happily dropped the Tendi Mariner mm -hmm. 
and Rutherford storyline, and given, like, I'm being honest, like, given more time to Ransom and Kayshawn, who, it seems as if it's kind of confirmed, we, we've been wondering in our heads, but he is kind of like the the deputy security chief at this point, right? Like, he, he's like a lieutenant junior grade versus Shax, who's a full lieutenant, and Shax is the one accompanying Captain Freeman on the planet. Are, are we on the same page there? Yeah, that's the sense I get, and I'm also beginning to wonder if Kayshawn is even going to be a character going forward, seeing as he has, like, what, three lines in this episode? Well, I, I mean, I, in my head, though, it's just like, kind of, more Kayshawn, like, the better. It's kind of like, um, just just those throwaways lines, like, you know, uh, Shaka, his eyes red, you know, like, mm. just, like, that sort of stuff where, like, he's suddenly jumping into, like, the Temerian sort of way of communicating. Like, that makes me laugh, you know? Like, I'd like to see more Kayshawn. Like, out of the characters that um, have kind of appeared since the pilot episode, like, I, I, I'm i up there with the counselor of the ship, the, um, the yeah. giant bird, and Kayshawn. Like, those are kind of my top two at this point. So I'd be down to see more Kayshawn. I think this episode kind of bolstered it, but I'd rather him to be more than just kind of a background player, as we've seen in most of the episodes since um, the, uh, I, I guess, the second episode of the season. Well, do you remember in season one, you and I going back and forth debating, like, what are they doing with Billups? It seems like this character just vanishes or has, like, one line. And then it seemed at a certain point they turned him into his chief characteristic was that he was very bland and unmemorable, which I thought was actually pretty funny. But he seems to have vanished a lot of this season. And Kayshawn is now popping up in that season one Billups role where sometimes he's just silent. And sometimes, like in this episode, he gets a couple lines, but nothing super remarkable. He seems to be more of a utilitarian sort of player in that the moments that we've seen him since episode two, it, it's like, well, he's in the background sparring or he's in the background taking over the security tactical officer's console while Shax is, you know, on an away mission. And, and so I hope they expand him beyond that kind of utilitarian usage and give him more moments, more episodes like this, where it's not necessarily a Kayshawn episode like we saw in episode two. But it is like like he's having fun moments and he can be there as like a character that we can kind of dive into more and more. I'll, I'll be honest with you, like Billups season one, I, I, I thought it was kind of like, oh, that's amusing. It's like his main characteristic is, as you say, he's not really a character. But I'm just like, if he disappears altogether, I'm like, what does it mean it, you know, for a character who doesn't really have any real big discernible personality traits? Yeah, it's almost like they decided he could be like the counselor as well, where he could just vanish for stretches at a time and maybe just do something with him when he pops up, but he's not essential to have there week to week. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, Cam. Uh, one of the things that I missed, uh, you know, kind of sharing with you and the listeners last week when we talked about our Star Trek Day sort of uh, big event that was going on, um, was that apparently, like, Dr. Culber is also going to take on the job of ship's counselor next season? Um, yeah, I, I kind of squinted when I heard that, like, he's a medical doctor, you know, like, what, what does that mean? Does it mean that maybe the writers are struggling to find, like, stuff to do with him? Like, I, I don't think that they've struggled with that prior to this. Like, like, honestly, him and Stamets had, like, the best, like, storyline all of season three. So I, I it just seems kind of an odd thing 
to do for him, especially since they had so much trouble finding stuff to do with Troy. I think they did better with Esri Dax, but what's your take on um, Dr. Culber's apparent new role based on just what they're saying during the Star Trek Day panel? Well, a couple things. Number one, he would be a psychiatrist, right? If he's a medical doctor, isn't that the way it sort of works? Well, that, that's what I'm very confused about, because Deanna Troy was not a medical doctor, one who's able to, say, prescribe medications or anything like that. She, she was a yeah. counselor, you know? So I, so to answer your question, I like, is he a psychiatrist? We don't really know how future medicine works, but yeah. Well, that's true. But I, I just keep thinking back to um, the uh, sitcom, the NBC sitcom Frasier, and watch... Fraser was like a psychiatrist. He could prescribe medication. So, uh, yeah, I, I, to answer your question, Cam, I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I just I like want another say. excuse to bring up Fraser. Yeah, I was going to say. I was like, where did that Fraser tangent go? Okay. Nowhere. <laughs> but, okay, so second of all, what it tells me is that when it came to figuring out season four Discovery... There was some sort of story arc they had tied to a character going through some sort of psychological journey, and they decided to tie Culber into this in some way. Maybe, God help us all, he winds up being the psychiatrist to Sukau. Okay, <laughs> cancel season four. <laughs> I mean, would you rule it out? Is that impossible? <laughs> no, um, I, I feel bad. I kept, I keep forgetting their name but uh who is the character um the the human character the uh that uh culber and stamus kind of took under their wing and was kind of their their father for right adira adira yeah like i wonder if that's more of the deal because of of course they're dealing with kind of that whole trill symbiont issue and you know their boyfriend uh apparently being dead but you know, there are his essence is, is still around. You know, maybe maybe that has something to do with it. I I, I don't know. I th- I think that's a really good guess and one that is probably more likely than Sue Cal. <laughs> wait, wait, no, Cam, Cam, Cam. Maybe there's a reason why um Kelsey Grammer was at the Las Vegas uh, convention this past summer. Mm, mm, good call, good call. Frazier is in the building. <laughs> I do think that is very likely. It seems like they love pairing Adira up with Stammer, uh, with Stammer, with uh, Culber and Stamets. That's their uh, together name, Stammer. But um, I like, I like. They're not the Benefer. They're the Stammer. Yeah. Um. So I that would make a lot of sense to have him in a role. We've already seen that Stamets was sort of this mentor figure. So Culber could be the therapist overseeing, you know, Adira's emotional journey through the season I, I could see that that makes a lot of sense that probably makes more sense as i said than sukal <laughs> although okay. now i really am actually wishing for like these really like somber sessions of him just like coaching sukal through you know stress techniques <laughs> I, I okay well maybe that's just a short trek um <laughs> but the okay. longest short trek <laughs> okay a season long short trek yeah that's right Cam, I don't even remember, where were we at with regards to this ep- <laughs> well, week's episode? yeah, I can circle Nordex. us back around. Yeah, okay. okay, so what did you think of just having these four stories running at the same time? Like, 
Did it feel to you like there was more they could be doing with these? Did it feel necessary to have four going at the same time? You already said the 10D1 felt a little disposable in comparison to the other three. Was it almost like they, I don't want to say chickened out, but they refused to, di to dive deeper into some of these stories that really could have yielded something a little richer? I think the Boimler uh, strike could have really ha had so much more to dig into i also think like i, I was just having fun with the kashan and the ransom stuff we've questioned a lot like what is ransom's you know like duty and, and, and job aboard the ship i think like his moments like this is his best episode yet that we've yes. gotten out of lower decks you know far and away like no question for me so i think we could have put uh, honestly i think we could have just cut the the mariner and company storyline altogether we could have diminished the Shaxx and Captain Janeway. That, that was actually a fun joke because the back ones are so dumb. They just see a woman captain and <laughs> call her Janeway. I <laughs> like, like that too. That was genius. Yes. Um, we could have just turned that into, you know, maybe a, cu a couple of, you know, like uh, Freeman to Cerritos. What's going on aboard the ship? Like a couple of those moments, you know. I, I, like there are moments where like... I just feel like the show is trying to spin way too many plates. And I think about like just classic episodes of Next Gen, you know, I, I, I'll throw this out there, you know, something like The Game, like that Wesley episode uh, featuring Ashley Judd. It was all focused on Wesley. Like you're following his journey as people are getting sucked into this game more and more. There were intersecting storylines. And I think that's what they should be focusing more on lower decks and like having something revolve around, uh, revolve around one character. And that character can encounter more of the main characters as their journey through the episode goes on. Like, I think that's the way, other than having all these separate storylines, which can get kind of confusing. I say that, but like, Cam, isn't it weird that like, it seems as if, you know, a sitcom like Seinfeld kind of mastered what Lower Decks is trying to do right now? Yeah, and Seinfeld would bring the story threads together in the end for like a big culmination. And Lower Decks, I think, did that once, and I gave them compliments for pulling that off. It doesn't seem like they're really trying to do that again. Um, this time we did get the uh, the Tendi story ties into the Boimler story, so there is that payoff. But um, yeah, like I wonder if the show feels an obligation to service its four leads, like because you look at this episode and we're being fairly dismissive of the Mariner Tendi Rutherford story, but this is like your three leads of the show. And it's almost like the show is not willing to just kind of, you know, give them the billups treatment for an episode or something like that. Like, we have to focus on them. And yet, this episode in particular was really interested in watching Ransom go about this, uh, looking after this potential Packlid spy or Freeman down on the planet trying to negotiate peace. I think those are really interesting storylines, but it felt like they were so worried about shortchanging their leads that you kind of get this mashup of all four. I, I, I agree with you. It's just like, it, it, it's almost kind of a confidence issue with the series and like, oh no, we're, we're paying all these people every week, you know, 10 episodes uh, a season. Like we need to find something for them to do when like, it's been okay. Like, there've been episodes of Star Trek before where, you know, Quark hasn't been in, you know, like maybe like, four or five episodes throughout the entire season. Like, I, I think they can do that, but I, uh, the, the pressure is different here because this is a half hour series, you know, and like go back and watch Star Trek, the animated series, you know, sure. You'd have like Kirk, Spock and Bones in every episode, but they weren't so pressured to give, 
you know, her, uh, like her own, her own separate storyline, every single episode of the animated series. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it would have been more satisfying, at least maybe for us, if the, you know, Tendi Rutherford and Mariner story started the same way, but then they got involved with, uh, Rumdar when he goes missing on the ship and we have sort of a team up with them and Ransom and Kayshawn looking for this character. Like maybe that would have been a way to service those characters, but tie them into a single story as opposed to Tendi turning into a scorpion. <laughs> yeah, that that was something. But, but I'll, I'll give credit. Like This is kind of the second episode in a row where instead of brute forcing their way out of the situation, it was kind of up to the crew to use their own smarts. Oh, you know what? I, I, I'm sorry. I said second episode in a row, but I also, I, I guess I'm thinking about the uh, Mugatu episode in, in which that's what they did. And they, they kind of negotiated with the Ferengi there. Mm-hmm. So I, I I like that sort of stuff more than what we see what we saw a lot on Voyager with you know every episode ends with uh, going to red alert red alert and the ship is firing its phasers or you know we saw, see that every week with uh, Discovery as well I I like people being smart and thinking their way out of the situation so I'll give props to Boimler about this and here here's the thing I I think in season one. Mariner was my favorite character. She she had a really great journey. But the more and more I watch, like I, I'm coming around. Like I think Boimler, and this episode ep- emphasized it. But I I think Boimler is my very favorite character from Lower Decks at this point. Well, Boimler is I think more interesting this season because there's some conflict with him, um, his aspirations versus his real love for just being with his friends and living the Lower Decks life. In season one, he didn't really have that conflict because he was constantly aspiring to move up in ranks here we get more of a split whereas like mariner seems very happy where she is so she's more of you know a standing still character right now um the other thing i I need to point out kim remember when they were showing like the initial artwork for the characters and you and i could not help but notice how much boimler looked like me Uh uh-oh i know where this is going (laughs) i'm just saying once he had like uh those muscles and pecs like sticking out of his uh uniform this week i mean I, I think it's come full circle. They are trying to make a Tyler Orton like copy, right? <laughs> oh, obviously, obviously, that's their primary inspiration. I was wondering if he was actually going to reveal like a muscle suit at a certain point because wasn't that something that the uh, some of the guys on TNG did at a certain point? I think they said that they had to kind of like maybe put some cushions in there or something like that. And no, I'm not making reference to um, Riker <laughs> having a lot of room in his pants, you know, because you know what they say about like tall men. You know, long legs, mm. but uh, <laughs> wouldn't know. I'm not tall. <laughs> True. Uh, li- like listeners, you don't know this. Uh, you haven't met Cam in real life. He's actually about four foot eleven. That's right. I am like um, Captain Exley from. I think that was his name from the last episode. I stand on the shoulder of people at all times. You, you're you're uh, Captain Exley's uh, number one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or were you thinking maybe Boimler is more of that kind of George Michael Bluth situation? Um, remember that one season where mm. he was wearing the muscle suit? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good call as well. Um, that's something like, I don't want people to think we're making fun of the TNG guys either. It was a very different era in television. Like nowadays, actors, if you're cast in any sort of genre property, you immediately have to uh, team up with a personal trainer to get into ripped shape. Like look at every Marvel movie, every TV show or whatever. That was not the case in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> well, I, I remember uh, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong, they're, they're talking recently about how uh, they were absolutely just given like a, 
a big talking to from Brandon Braga about how maybe they've been eating a few too many sweets in the latter seasons of Voyager. And it's just kind of, you just kind of like grown at that sort of stuff. Cause these are guys going from like, you know, they're, they're mid twenties into their thirties. It's, it's, it's going to happen. You know, it's just kind of like, but they don't want that to appear in the 24th century for some reason. Like, I'm just kind of like, Ugh. but, but again, that, that was a show from the nineties. It's kind of of the era. And I, don't know that things have really changed for the more supportive because you know you look at the discovery show and you just hear them talk about the uniforms and how unforgiving they were and uh you know it's not like they've made them i think more flattering for people of all sizes well there there, there are, is more body diversity in star trek discovery than any other series before it so i i think we should give them some credit for that though mm, good call. Um, back to the episode though <laughs> nothing makes me delight more than like when they don't need to like um like really hit home what the joke is they can just kind of let us picture it in our heads you know like uh then making a visit to the top secret starfleet gift shop (laughs) you see the packlet rumbar walking out with a uss cerritos shirt (laughs) like that made me laugh and then they made reference to the high security juice bar it's like, <laughs> like you don't need to actually see that stuff. You can picture it. It's funnier if you picture it like in your head. And I think the absolutely like kind of, you know, zenith of that was when they, they really spelled it out in which the Packlin mistook the airlock for the bathroom <laughs> and yeah. and took a crap in there and um, he was blown out of the ship. Like, um <laughs> That, that that like that was the funny stuff. Like like maybe again, like I, I, I'm more of a caveman, but like that's the sort of stuff that made me laugh. Well, I like the payoff too to their entire search where they just look out the window and he's floating by in space. Like, <laughs> like I do think there was more you could do with this scenario. Like I really think this was a great comedic concept and just the idea of a Packlid spy, I, I think you could have done more, even more. No, I, I I'm with you. And it's just I, I just I wish Okay, in the final, what, four episodes of the season, I just, I don't think it's going to change, but I think the best thing that they could figure out is, like, let's focus on just an A story, and whoever the A story focuses on, like, it's a small ship. They can interact with every single person on the crew. You don't need four storylines going on simultaneously, and I I know people may be thinking, oh, we're, we're being too nitpicky, but I just think it's easier to follow you're more invested in the folks here this this is what i want to say about star trek lower decks is i like the hangout factor here that's what we've Mm -hmm. always talked about star trek is being with these characters kim i like all these characters on the crew i want to spend more quality time with them but if we're jumping back and forth nonstop over the course of like 22 23 minutes i i don't know if i'm able to get that hangout factor that i i would crave I would have loved as well for them to do more with like the foursome we met in this episode headed by Ensign Casey, where, you know, they're the ones that uh, are, it's kind of like the Bizarro Jerry episode where, um, <laughs> you know, Jerry, or where Elaine meets the guys that are just like her own crew, but like the positive versions. And here we have Boimler jumping over to uh, Casey's crew. And I would have liked to just play more with their dynamic and maybe find some funny things there because they're new characters. I'm sure they could all have quirks that were interesting and we get bits and pieces of them all, but Casey's very much at the forefront. I just think, again, great comedic concept. Let's do more. You can dig a little deeper. You don't have to just hit the obvious jokes and move on. Do you think uh, the red shirt crew, uh, they were ever members of Red Squad uh, back in uh, the <laughs> Academy years? 
Well, I actually was thinking something different. When they were called the Red Shirt Crew, I thought that was going to pay off in a very different way. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got a scorpion in the uh, in the bar, so who knows what's going to happen. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, going into the broader story, though, I, I do like the idea of, like, what does it mean if, like, all these ensigns are trying to inspire give commands and you don't have people actually doing anything like i i don't need star trek to give me you know a full house like lesson every week but i I think there is kind of a good message here in which like a a lot of these characters they don't need to just ape the style of one captain Riker to be you know like dedicated um leaders of their own you know And, and in the end you know ransom was like saying to ensign casey like oh acting captain yeah okay sure Go for that. I, I don't care. And then he just makes that little comment to Boimler. It's like, great job in the mess hall today. Like, that's, you know, like those are the small moments that I like. And I, I, that's really why I, I really dug what Ransom was doing in this episode. Yeah, I thought Ransom was really fantastic in this one. Because the thing is, more often than, than not, they just portrayed him as like a doofus. Where we didn't have a good sense of, like, why would anyone follow this guy? Why does he have his job? I like that, I like that here they're showing that he's good at his job. And can support, you know, the lower ranking members when they deserve, you know, respect. But we also have, you know, the fact he is a pretty funny guy. Like, I I think they could just do more with that and show him being capable and funny at the same time. As opposed to just playing, you know, the guitar or, you know, working out all the time. Yeah. Um, but all in all, like, uh, Ensign Casey did get that moment as acting captain. Hmm. Is about, I say a moment, it's more like half a second before Shaq says... New shift on deck. Get out of my chair. Go clean up. Go clean up. Airlock seventeen. Like <laughs> that. That was a pretty fun moment. That was a good one. Um, I also had a question for you about Boimler's solution to the Tendy Scorpion, where we see him doing all these prat falls and dropping food on himself. Is <laughs> the Kurtzman era obsessed with silent comedy, <laughs> like uh, Buster Keaton stuff that like we discussed in uh, Discovery season three? Hmm. Yep. And we also, you know, I, I, <laughs> so what's next? Uh, Charlie Chaplin's a dictator or was that, was that? Sure. In, uh... Although, yeah, that, that one, he actually spoke. Yeah. He, that was, sorry, that, that was a talkie as they called them back in the day. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You have to go more to like gold rush or, uh, modern times, I suppose. Okay. Well, maybe Buster Keaton, what was it? A young Einstein. You and I actually watched that in, uh, theaters mm-hmm. or yeah. no, was it young Edison? Sherlock. It was young Sherlock. Young Sherlock. Uh, this is how I'm not an Einstein. I'm not an Edison or Sherlock. And I, I can't get any of this right. It uh, does seem like there's this real like appreciation for like physical silent comedy going on right now in the Kurtzman verse. I don't understand it, but I am looking forward to the scene of Picard watching like old timey silent movies. Is he going to go into like in in twenty first century Los Angeles and just hit up like a marathon of this sort of stuff? I mean, that would be great. Just show him in like an old multiplex, uh, or just a, a multi. I guess it's on multiplex back in those days. Just an individual theater, um, eating popcorn. A Nickelodeon. At, a Nickelodeon. There you go. Laughing at like uh, yeah, Gold Rush. That would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, oh, I got like, it. I got I... it. Even better. Even oh, okay. better. Picard recreating the famous potatoes on fork scenes and doing the dance scene. You know what? Forget that. Uh, let's flash you know forward a, a couple decades and just do the uh, Lucille Ball um, chocolate factory moment with Patrick Stewart <laughs> taking on that role. Who would be in the other role? Uh, 
I think that's Elnor's job. Definitely Elnor's job. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the flash to the uh, animated version of the Enterprise D bridge? I, I, I'm a bit of a stucker, uh, sucker for some nostalgia, but um, did it work for you or were you just kind of groaning? No, no, I liked it. That's, a, I think, a really good bit of fan service and nostalgia and also touches on character because Boimler very much idealizes the journey of the, you know, the TNG crew. So it would make sense that he would see himself there. And I think it looked as immaculate and perfect as it would in his, you know, imagination. Are you kind of surprised? You know, like we talked about it like years and years ago uh, when news of the Picard spinoff was first coming, how like we kind of thought that it would either be him being like the commandant of on like Starfleet Academy or else he'd be kind of seconded, you know, sitting in maybe Counselor Troy's chair on what would essentially be a galaxy-class starship. And I, I'm just wondering, like, do you think there's ever a spinoff that might work only because it would be hitting the nostalgia factor so much? It, it, it just takes place in a galaxy-class starship. You know, we see those same sets. I, I think fans will go wild for it, even though it is kind of manipulative and a little bit derivative. But we, we know that people tune in just because it's so familiar. Only thing that gives me pause, because I don't think it's impossible, especially if we had like a Star Trek anthology show, I could totally see a season doing that. I wonder if the existence of the Orville would throw that off, and that it was very much doing that exact same thing. Well, I, I I'm kind of glad you brought up the Orville in that. Uh, isn't it just like heartbreaking that Norm Macdonald, uh, like uh, you and I, we, we've had dinners. I've, I've talked about how much I like his comedy. He mm -hmm. was playing like kind of that gelatinous blob lieutenant on the Orville. It's kind of heartbreaking. Like he just kind of passed so suddenly and like, we, we never even knew. Like he, like he made it to 61, which still seems very young considering, you know, my own parents' age, but uh, ages, you know, but uh, th like that guy is just such a unicorn and it, it's just so, it, it, it it, it's I, I hate using you know what what <laughs> not that you would remember but like when uh, John Lennon uh, was was murdered and Paul McCartney was kind of like caught off guard and somebody asked him about it he's like yeah it's a bummer I don't want to use the term bummer but it it seriously kind of bums me out when like uh, a unicorn such as that kind of attached to the extended Star Trek universe when you consider kind of the the talent behind the scenes you know it kind of goes what what I think is too soon. Yeah, I've spent the last couple of days just watching Norm Macdonald clips on YouTube. And just what a voice, like just incredible. You look up his clips on like Conan, for example, and they're incredible. Um, I did watch Saturday Night Live. At the time, he was on that show and I loved his weekend update appearances. So yeah, this one kind of stung. It's it's always, as you get older too, it's harder to be like, what a tragedy at that age, right? Like... As I said, you kind of, oh, as you get older, you realize your odds get less and less with every passing year. Um, but it's just, it's brutal just when someone that distinctive kind of goes. Because you're not going to get a replacement. You don't have anyone you can say, well, there's other, you know, comedians doing similar things. Like, no one was doing what he was doing. Well, I was just going to say that. Like, he, he kind of jumped onto the scene because, like, there's no comedy like his. And you look at what's around there. There might be people kind of aping his style to a certain degree. 
but he's just so unique in that, like, he, like uh, you keep looking at the tributes to him, and, the, and there's, like, he, he just did not believe in pandering whatsoever, mm-hmm. and he just was giving you kind of, like, he, he would always subvert whatever your expectations were for a joke. You, you and I have complained, like, uh, when we watch a lot of trailers for movies, for, like, comedies in particular, if you and I can predict what the joke is going to be, it's not a very funny joke. And yeah. I could never predict, like, I'll, his last Netflix special, I just, like, I remember him pointing out something I never thought about before. But when you think about the abbreviation for ID, he's like, I stands for I, and D stands for dentification. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's a little unfair to, like, that particular, like, abbreviation, you know, it's 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 all on one particular letter. It's the stuff you never think about, and that's kind of why it's just so heartbreaking to know that that mind is not out there anymore for us to just, like, benefit from it and just laugh really heartily at. Well, he saw the universe in a very unique way, and that's why his comedy was so surprising, was because you couldn't... You could never see the punchline coming because you don't see the universe in the same way he did. But he also never cared what anybody thought. Like, he would nope. say anything that was on his mind in in front of anyone. Like, just think about that, like, classic uh, Conan uh, clip where he was sitting next to Courtney Thorne-Smith, who, mm. was, who was promoting her movie with uh, Carrot Top. And, um, like, Conan was just like, well title to be announced and uh i think norm said like i know what it is box office poison and she's sitting right next to him she's starring in this movie and then she follows up and says no it's chairman of the board because it's about a movie in which carrot top takes over uh a company and then norm mcdonald responds back board as in b-o-r-e-d it's kind of like he's sitting next to the woman like starring in this movie he just doesn't care it's just like just amazing stuff like that you know like that like how many other comedians would actually do that you know yeah it's so true like uh it's just it's brutal when a comedic voice like that goes and honestly it's the type of unpredictable comedy i wish we got a little more of in lower decks sometimes honestly i i know it's what we've always kind of talked about it like we wish like Lower Decks was a little bit more cutthroat, a little bit more mean-spirited in its comedy. Like, like not not like, like crossing the line, but just a little bit more cutting. Whereas this almost seems a little fa- family-friendly, even though you have, you know, characters just telling Armis that uh, he looks like yeah. a puddle of shit. Which, like, like, that's funny to me, but it's like, uh, you know, but it's like, I, I wish there was more of kind of the, um, the biting sort of humor that uh, we'd get from somebody like Norm Macdonald. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, this season of Lower Decks, we've had a lot of moments where characters just like throw up or get like bloody or something, which is fine. It's, you know, physical comedy, but I think they could just go weirder. I think that like, I'm glad you brought up that phone call with Armis, which I thought was a real highlight of the episode. It actually was legit making me laugh, but... I was also thinking, there's more you can do. There's more you can do with this. And it just feels like they always pull back a little bit. I wish they would just go crazy. Yeah. Well, Kim, uh, maybe before we jump over to our next discussion, just any, any final thoughts on the spy humongous? Yeah, I had one other thing, just in regards to the Packlids. And this season, we've seen the Packlids be a pretty significant presence on the show. How long do you think the Packlids are going to stick around? Is this going to be a, a you know lower decks mainstay, or is this going to be a season long thing? I hope it's a mainstay. 
I honestly think that if you are dealing with a ship that is all about like kind of the crappy assignments, I think it makes sense that their, you know, you know, series long nemesis will be the Packlets. You know, like yeah. that's just funny to me because they're so dumb. I'm dumb enough that every time they're on screen, I was just kind of laughing at like all their dumb like insights and comments you know like i don't have enough a uh, big enough helmet for that decision like that sort of stuff that just made me laugh i'm really enjoying them too and they could have been a one joke thing where you just kind of got tired of them but it feels like they found enough ground to play around and honestly just when you have like the revolution going on it really made me realize we could be doing more with this like we could explore packlet society in future episodes you don't need to spend a lot of time but there's more we can do here so i'm all for milking them for everything they're worth I guess maybe we get a, a season finale dealing with the Packlids. We we got that last season as well. That that might come up again in season two. Yeah, although I wonder if they won't want to repeat themselves and do another Packlid finale. I wonder if they'll, you know, throw in a wrench and we'll get, who knows, a, a Q episode or, or just something crazy. Who knows? Maybe another crew member turns into a giant scorpion. I'm, a, I'm about good for those for a while. <laughs> Don't tell that to Dwayne The Rock Johnson and uh, his Scorpion King uh, you know, uh, uh, history. <laughs> it just feels like you're stretching when you're coming up with multiple scenes of characters like transforming into things. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, Kim, like, uh, just before we wrap up, though, like maybe just a couple comments. Like We're clearly moving to, into fall at this point. It's a different season for movies. Um, we finally started going back to theaters yet again. Um, maybe we could just talk about what was kind of a, a weird blockbuster summer. Um, I mean, my first time being back in the theater in like almost 18 months, it was for Black Widow. Um, I think you and I, maybe the next week or two, we went and saw F9 in theaters. There are a couple other movies. It, it's just so weird because I like I'd like to consider the movies that I saw in theaters to be part of the the summer movie season but like you and i saw a very interesting movie the green knight in theaters um it, it's a movie where I, I can admire it more than um like really really champion it i i think it's visually captivating it, it it strikes a tone that i was sucked into but um you you heard me complain when we walked out i, I think narratively um I, I think there are flaws trying in this effort to adapt something from you know like a thousand years ago into modern storytelling and uh, but i i still would recommend it for anybody who's looking for something very unique but what, what what's your overall take where you have movies like cruella which would otherwise drop in the summer it's now just kind of going to streaming like almost instantly <laughs> yeah i actually watched cruella the other night um boy two hours and 20 minutes there disney really okay Fair enough, I guess. But um, well, how would you know how uh, punk music started in London, Cam? If not for Cruella, it's weird. Like that movie had me convinced I was watching something really, you know, quite good in the first like half an hour. Cut to two and a half hours later, and I was like, I'm done. I've been done for a while now. Um, it's funny they so often talk about how like people nowadays, young people, have such short attention spans. And yet they are watching two and a half hour long Cruella films and Marvel films that run up to three hours. <laughs> it's like, sure. Well, and all fairness, isn't the next James Bond movie going to be almost three hours long? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the thing. Blockbusters, we've gone back to the 60s. Because the 60s famously was a time where television was getting really good and had really solid production quality. You know, you look at Star Trek in 66 or the Batman Adam West show in 66 as well. And so theaters got really scared and their way of competing with uh, television was to make very long movies 
movies that had no right to be three hours long. They were like, they have to be three hours because people can't watch that on television. And we want a cast of thousands in every single movie. And so you just, if you go through the 60s, it's so many incredibly long movies that look unbelievably expensive. I watched um, the 1962 Mutiny on the Bounty the other night, and boy, all the money is all over the screen. But it feels like we've gone back to that. So a lot of blockbusters have this bloat problem I'm seeing. Um, you and I saw Shang-Chi recently, and it was, I think, 215, I think. And uh, we were kind of mixed on that one, but it's like, did this need to be this long? Uh, I don't know. Well, say so the difference between Shang-Chi and, say, Dr. Zhivago hmm. is how breathtaking Dr. Zhivago is yep. versus Shang-Chi, where I, it's like, oh, wow, I'm looking at animation uh, with actors against a green screen for about 75% of this. There, there are moments in Shang-Chi that uh, you and I were utterly sucked into. I, I think about um, two of the big action sequences, sequences. I'll just say, you know, the word bus and I'll mm -hmm. say the words, you know, um, bamboo scaffolding. Um, I guess I'll also say the word sir. Well, actually, maybe maybe I won't. I'll just say the word sir. But um, there, there are moments w within Shang-Chi that we like. But it's like when I see something like Dr. Shivago, which is a very long movie, it's like I feel – well, I, I know that I am there. I am witnessing what is going on physically. I am I am ultimately so much more impressed by what they can do with physical you know, production versus what uh, they can accomplish inside of a computer. I, I'm just – I just kind of shrug. You know, it, it doesn't suck me in. And – Honestly, you and I kind of agreed. Like, Shang-Chi just kind of dragged, didn't it? Yeah, it just, it was weird. Like, people really love it. And I'm excited that people really enjoyed Shang-Chi and it's going to get sequels and continue onward. So that is genuinely exciting. I, I'm hoping we get that sort of Winter Soldier level sequel to it where I'm completely pulled around on, you know, this individual franchise. But um, it's funny, you know. Well, uh, just, uh, yeah. just, just. Just very quickly, uh, just uh, I I'll point out because I was thinking about it, like after you and I had that discussion after we got out of the movie, but like I think about like uh, the first Captain America, mm -hmm. the the first couple Thor movies, it took them a while to figure out those characters, you know, like I, I they haven't done it with say Captain Marvel, but it's there's only a few characters at Marvel. I would say half of the Marvel characters are kind of fleshed out by the first movie. Yeah, the other half are not. You know, like I, I know who Doctor Stephen Strange is. I, I know who Ant-Man is by the first movie, but like they, it took them, I think, four movies to figure out who Thor was going to be. And I, I see enough potential within, uh, you know, the Shang-Chi character that they can, there's enough charisma bubbling under the surface of this character that there's hope. It's just like they didn't give him as much to do as, as say, somebody like Aquafina, who, um, I, I, she, she's got this certain like kind of charisma about her, even if they weren't giving her great material. She was running with it as much as she could. And they also have Tony Leung as the villain, who's one of the greatest living Asian yeah. actors. And unbelievable like no one told this man he was appearing in a marvel franchise film he showed up thinking he was in one of the all-time great films and he was going to give the performance of his lifetime and he's incredible in this movie like people if you haven't seen other films with tony leong check them out he's unbelievable it's infernal affairs part three but hmm. um like uh shout out to star trek we, we had michelle yo uh, she was featured in Shang-Chi as well. And, and she kind of elevated uh, that movie. Like she, she brought some life to it, even though it's kind of like there's only so much she could do with, I think, the material that she was given. I, I, I feel bad because it, I don't want to be picking on a movie 
uh, in which the lead is is only the second person of color in Marvel history to get you know kind of like a showcase movie. Mm-hmm. I just I I was so much more captivated by say Black Panther than I was by Shang Chi though. I also do wonder how much of this is Marvel burnout because it's one thing when you get three movies a year, but we also are getting multiple movies a year plus all these streaming TV shows, and suddenly the Marvel formula starts to look a little tired and so I I can't help but wonder if that was also at play here because it didn't feel like a movie that to me was enlivening that formula in an exciting way maybe like I don't know Winter Soldier. Cam you you and I have talked about it we are not looking forward or at least that there's nothing really gripping us uh, about uh, the the trailers for the Eternals right? That that film Eternals Chloe Zhao I've really loved her first two movies, so I'm there oh, yeah. for Eternals. But what is going on with that movie? It looks unbelievably bad from every bit of marketing they're showing us. It's funny, um, I uh, was talking with my sister about the trailer for the new Hawkeye show that just you know dropped the other day. And she's just like, why are they able to make a really exciting Hawkeye trailer, but they can't make a watchable Eternals trailer? And I was like, I don't know, Janine. I don't know. Is it? Is it different marketing departments between Disney Plus and, you know, the... the Theatrical? Theatrical studio? Maybe. It could be. Yeah. I just, I like, I, I don't know what The Eternals is about at this point. I don't really care. It's, like, I, I've watched all the trailers. I've just kind of shrugged. But I, I guess Marvel's never been known for good marketing. There's very few. You can look at the initial Guardians of the Galaxy teaser set to Hooked on a Feeling. There's also the Thor Ragnarok one set to Immigrant Song. But few and far between had really remarkable trailers. What 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 music should we set uh, the Eternals to, Cam? God, I don't even know. It's so bland looking. Um... Okay, how about a Olivia Rodrigo song? Oh, no, no, no. How about ago? Bring Me to Life by Evanescence? Because please, God, bring that movie to life. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let me throw this at you. Like, uh, I'll, I'll just state for you uh, my favorite movies of the summer. Uh, you and I, we saw a very, very weird movie, Old. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the M. Night Shyamalan movie. You pointed this out after we walked out. It's like, they don't make many movies like this nope you know where it's just it's it's weird for the sake of being weird and we kind of had to enjoy it for that i i don't think it's a great movie but i i certainly had no problem sitting through that for like maybe 100 110 minutes it kind of like whizzed right by me the other one i i guess in just more of the the blockbuster um sort of format um it, it's it had its flaws but um there are too many moments uh too many character moments that i enjoyed about uh the suicide squad the, the kind of reboot resequel whatever you want to call it like um i enjoyed that movie i'd be happy to watch it again even though that was a very long movie that i think they could have chopped a lot out of but um those are probably the highlights for me um and i mentioned the green knights uh, more something i admire but I, I i'm so thankful that they can still make movies like that and get into theaters yeah like green knight and old were the two that have stuck with me since seeing them and I'm actually looking forward to picking up the Green Knight on 4K because I think it'll look pretty beautiful at home. Oh, yeah. And it's one that I can see myself digging into um, in the future, especially I have the uh, the original text from my days of English lit. So uh, I'm going to read it and um, rewatch the movie when it hits, uh, you know, physical media. But um, beyond that, I don't know that a lot grabbed me. Like I thought Black Widow was 
pretty fun, largely because of Florence Pugh's performance. I thought she was a lot of fun in that movie. Um, but it wasn't top-tier Marvel by any stretch. Like, it was watchable. Um, that was the problem for me. A lot of the movies that did wind up in theaters this summer, at, mo- at best, they were watchable. There was nothing that I walked out in terms of blockbusters being like, what a great movie. Can't wait to, you know, buy that one and rewatch it. Yeah, I mean, I, the first 12 minutes of Black Widow, I wish that was the remaining two hours of Black Widow. Otherwise, that movie just didn't really connect for me. Um, I'd say that there's some sequences within F9 that I, I thought were great. But Cam, another movie, what was that like? two hours and 40 minutes long where that movie could have easily been like under two hours um you know it's just it's very much kind of stroking the ego of vin diesel non-stop and uh, otherwise i think that maybe did a disservice to some pretty cool like action sequences that we got to see from this uh this franchise that's now like 20 plus years old which is just insane to think about yeah, that one was bookended with some really good action sequences. And actually, another movie I watched um, that sort of touches on something you mentioned earlier about not being super impressed by a lot of these movies that are made in a computer. I saw Jungle Cruise, you know, with Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, which is kind of the... Mm, this summer's answer to movies like The Mummy, sort of those pulpy B-adventure films that can be kind of fun if you're into that sort of thing. This was this one is not great by any stretch of the imagination. It's basically just Indiana Jones mashed up with um, um, Pirates of the Caribbean. But there was a couple fun action sequences and comedic beats. But again, um, I was never for a second convinced I was watching actors on the Amazon River. I, I don't blame you for that. It, it didn't feel like uh, Jennifer Lopez and Anaconda, right? Oh, you know what? I'm actually a big fan of Anaconda. And so... No, Anaconda is much better. I would recommend Anaconda more. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the one thing I will highlight, the worst movie I watched so far this year was The Tomorrow War that hmm. didn't actually make it into theaters. It was the Amazon. Uh, essentially, Amazon bought the rights to it and plunked it on its own uh, Amazon Prime service. Um, that movie, I was just, it, it took me four goes. <laughs> I kept like pausing it and doing laundry or, or making dinner. And then I think there's even like a, a day in between like I, that, that movie to me is just like the worst the worst sort of like throwback to 90s action movies that sucked but with like bigger production values but production values that weren't all that great like i i, I don't know I, I don't know if have you watched that one yet no the runtime has scared me off um i mean i i know it's not well reviewed by any stretch of the imagination and you know two hours 20 minutes it, it's one that i feel like i'll probably watch by the end of the year but Whenever I have a night off, I look at that and I go, no, what else is on? You know, I'll watch Mutiny on the Bounty. That seems far more appealing to me. I, I, I'm not going to lead you in the direction of uh, perhaps watching uh, The Tomorrow War versus some other kind of movies that came out in the summer, like uh, Pig, mm. I thought was great. Uh, you know, Bo Burnham's uh, Inside, I, I thought was like very unique. Uh, that was a Netflix uh, straight to. No Sudden Move, the latest Steven Soderbergh movie, what was kind of very interesting to watch. Um, Nobody uh, with uh, Bob Odenkirk what was cool too. That that Woodstock '99 documentary. Yeah. Um, I feel very mixed about, but I was still captivated by a lot that was being showcased there. 
Yeah, and I actually really liked uh, Luca, the new Pixar movie. I thought that was really well done, and I think it's an absolute crime it did not get a theatrical distribution, or that Disney chose not to show it in theaters at all, because that was a movie made for the cinema screen. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it's a, a mid-May release, but um, the uh, Tyler Sheridan movie starring Angeline Jolie, Those Who Wish Me Dead, that was kind of a disappointment. I, I'm, I find... Tyler Sheridan, like, or, or Taylor Sheridan, like, uh, kind of all over the place. Like, sometimes he makes, like, just really great stuff, and other times it just feels like made for TV movie stuff. So uh, I don't know what to make of that. As someone who covered, without remorse, the Michael B. Jordan, Tom Clancy adaptation that he uh, co-wrote, yeah, some of it can feel like TV movies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, uh, Cam, uh, overall, how did this... Uh, summer movie experience uh rank versus uh 2020 not great bill not great at all (laughs) (laughs) so what are you looking forward to because yeah the summer was such a blip i mean you know obviously cinemas are in a very weird place and we're doing what we can to support them our numbers in vancouver are lower so we feel safer going to theater we're not telling people they should be going if they don't feel safe in you know their hometowns but for us in vancouver it's been a little more of a um acceptable option for entertainment but going forward we do have some things i think we're looking forward to i mean no time to die is one i've been looking forward to forever as a you know long basically almost lifelong james bond fan that and i'm i'm curious about dune and i think dune is one that probably people listen to the podcast have a fair amount of interest in yeah I, well maybe we can plug uh your other podcast spy hards I, i'm assuming you'll have something up kind of like a uh, initial reactions to no time to die mm-hmm. pretty soon after the movie's release is that is that kind of the idea yeah after the opening weekend i think is the plan for, yeah so you can follow that at spy hards podcast which can be easily found wherever you get podcasts uh but like you said, like a couple of weeks later, we'll be getting Dune, which, look, I can watch Denis Villeneuve film the phone book, if that's a thing. Um, so I, I'm i looking forward to it. Like, uh, I, kind of the initial reviews are like, uh, it's a weird movie. It has its flaws. But if you want to be visually captivated, uh, this is a movie for you. And he's never not made me sucked into just how he creates this atmosphere. I, I think he's just a master of it. And so no matter what, I, I'm sure I'll be captivated. Uh, who knows how much this storyline sucks me in, like, say, Sicario did, uh, for example. Sure. I mean, this one to me looks similar to Blade Runner 2049. Um, and I really enjoyed Blade Runner 2049. I have no love for Dune. I've never read the books The only experience I had with Dune was watching the 80s David Lynch film, which I found painful. And I am a David Lynch fan who loves almost all of his other work. So the fact that that one sent me screaming in the opposite direction doesn't fill me with like... um, I'm not like hugely anticipating Dune, but I'm hoping it's like a Blade Runner 2049 where I just sit there and get sucked in by the world building going on. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same position as you are. Uh, I'll be honest, the the fall movie that I'm anticipating the most to like a, a huge degree is The Many Saints of Newark, the uh, Sopranos sort of mm, yeah. uh, prequel movie. Uh, just uh, every interview I, I hear about it, every feature I read about it, I, I've been kind of avoiding spoilers, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm so intrigued by whatever happens, e- even if it's a bad movie. Like, and it doesn't succeed, 
I'm I still know I'm going to enjoy it if that makes any sense. Like there's no way I I cannot enjoy it unless they suddenly reveal that it's a time travel movie in in which um uh Tony Soprano has to go back in time to save his unborn self or something. I I, I don't know. Well, like you're a huge Sopranos fan and I recently watched the whole series and loved it as well. Um it's like a Star Trek movie. You can show us any Star Trek movie. We're going to be excited. And even if we don't like it, let's be honest, you're going to watch that Star Trek movie a few more times and you're going to get an enjoyment out of it that you wouldn't out of another movie you don't like. Well, here's why I have a lot of hope for this one, though. You watch any given episode of The Sopranos, it kind of stands on its own in that there is a story being told outside of whatever you know serialized b stories are going on it's like they have something to say i think that they still remember that lesson from back in the day and that's why i no matter what this movie turns out into being like i i I think i'm just going to be sucked in and like i'm going to be laughing at the jokes for those who've never watched the sopranos like cam you can attest to this it is one of the funniest shows, like, ever. It, it's just absolutely hilarious, and you wouldn't expect it coming from something that is often described as, as a very serious show as well. So I, I think what their goal is, though, is just kind of create one of those kind of, like, all-time gangster movies. I, I think they ultimately just want, like, uh, a, a gangster movie that would kind of... Um, you know, it'll be talked about maybe not in the not like godfather or uh goodfellas but maybe out there like maybe a, a donnie brasco or something like that the trailer for this movie is unbelievably good uh so yes. i'm very very optimistic this one i'm holding up higher than dune for example in my anticipation you know movies i'm anticipating going forward uh it's really high up there i'm trying to think of what else is really even competing i think it's probably uh, many Saints of Newark and um, No Time to Die for me are the top two. Not Carnage? Oh, Venom 2. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Um, and <laughs> I don't know what... To, this is one also I think listeners will be interested in. I don't know what to make of The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, I love the original Matrix like so many, but those sequels really did not work for me. And I've just found a lot of the um, Wachowski storytelling in the last decade plus often very shaky i liked cloud atlas but that's really about it yeah i i remember we walked up cloud atlas and we kind of looked at each other and we knew it was just a bizarre movie but we couldn't help but just enjoy it for how weird it was and bizarre it was and like they don't make movies like that and cam i'll just say this as soon as uh the white rabbit song started playing in the matrix resurrections trailer I was like, oh, you've got my $17. Oh, yeah. I am going to that opening night. Like, I, I was just totally, totally sucked in by that trailer. I don't know what this movie is about. Um, It looks like 10 times better than kind of that, that bland looking. You know how the look and feel we get out of the Marvel movies and like a lot of those Fast and Furious movies is a very sort of monolithic kind of like blah sort of tone to it this is what i i really want uh, like the the matrix re- uh, resurrections to avoid and based on that trailer it's doing that like the the wachowskis just have just I, and I, I it's it's lana wachowski directing at solo not lily's not involved i i believe and i i think that it just 
just the visual look of it. It's, it's just kind of like the, the, how the colors pop, just the movements of like those missiles shooting at helicopters. It's not something that we're getting from any of those blockbuster movies that we, we mentioned just in uh, the last you know 20 minutes or so. Yeah, like Dune and Matrix feel like the two that I am 100% their opening weekend. I'm looking very much forward to seeing them on the big screen, but I'm just not sure about the narratives. Like, I'm there, they've sold me with their trailers, but fingers crossed we walk out at least with one, like, science fiction masterpiece to talk about. Uh, that's what the writers of Star Trek Lower Decks intended to do with this week's episode as well. <laughs> oh, that actually, sorry, reminds me just briefly. I was just curious if you watched the preview or just a little snippet they put out of the Star Trek director's cut of the motion picture, the little um, upgrade um, bit they sent out. I did not. Any thoughts you care to share? Yeah, it just shows a shot of the Enterprise in the antechamber. And then they, they have the original, you know, film. And then they do the upgrade in this 11-second clip. And it looks so beautiful. So if you have a large TV and a 4K setup, I think the director's cut motion picture is going to be a real find. Like something that is going to be one of those show-off-your-home-stereo um, movies. So I'm counting the days for that one. Will the bunny ears on my 8-inch black-and-white pick up that trailer by any chance only one way to find out okay so i think on that note our assignment is complete if you enjoyed listening to this podcast we want to hear from you jump on over to the facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod tyler i just can't even imagine what are we doing next week lower decks cam lower decks it's what we've been doing the past six weeks i promise you we'll do it next week too okay so you can of course find us on the twitter I'm at Cam. V is in Veruvian Bomb Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R E P. P is in Puddle of Shit. O R T O N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. <laughs>